Hi, my name is Harry Huang, and this is my youngest daughter, Alyssa. My wife, Kathy, uh, my oldest son, Joshua, middle son, Luke, and Alyssa, uh, we became members of Wana Creek Prez just last week. We first became acquainted with Wana Creek Prez Church about 10 years ago when our oldest son, Joshua, was uh, kindergarten classmates and friends with Stephen Betty Young's youngest daughter, Michaela. Through the years since then, we've gone to Naomi two times and served here on campus for the Night to Shine event with many of you multiple times, all the while attending other and, and heavily involved in other churches um, in the area. And then the pandemic hit and everything kind of shut down for a bit. And it, it caused us to really question and kind of search and kind of ponder our connectedness, our community, and our lack of community during the pandemic. And at the same time, around that time, we heard that Bart Garrett was the pastor uh, at WCPC now. And Bart actually had been our first pastor up in the Bay Area uh, for a brief moment when we lived in the Berkeley, Oakland area, and we attended Christ Church. So with Bart here and the deep connections we had with Stephen Betty Young and others that we serve with in Night of Shannon and Naomi, putting it all together, we just felt like it was time to kind of see what WCPC was like. And so we started coming in February and it's been amazing. It's been so great to, uh, to serve, to connect and just get involved. So this week's scripture reading is from various passages in Genesis chapters 1 to 3, first being Genesis 1, 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 18 to 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Genesis 3, 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat any, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. This, this is, is the, the word of the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, my name is Harry Huang. And this oh, is my youngest. I was just about to say you guys did such a great job. We're going to hear it twice, I think. No, um, thank you. Uh, and welcome, everyone. I, I joined Mary in, in saying hello. I'm Bart Garrett, the lead pastor here. We're delighted to have you with us this morning. And as you can tell, we're in this series entitled Once, a Once Upon a Beginning. And we're going back to Genesis 1 through 3. And we're looking at various relationships that we have in life. Uh, we talked the first week about our relationship with the world, with the cosmos. And then last week about our relationship with God. And then today about our relationship with one another. And along the way, we're essentially asking uh, three primal questions. Who am I? Where am I going? How am I going to get there? Because we've suggested that emerging from the global pandemic has us needing to revisit these questions, asking them of ourselves, whether we be 8 or 18 or 80, whether we be deeply convinced of our faith or in the midst of doubt and uncertainty. And our trail map has been Genesis 1 through 3. And as we explore its poetry together, we've also suggested there's a lot of background noise that can get in the way of your hearing the main messages of these passages. For instance, if you have particular perceptions or presuppositions about the Bible, is it historically unreliable? Is it scientifically antiquated? Is it morally regressive, you may be asking? Those are not bad questions. They're actually good and important questions, and that's why we're pairing middle-hour conversations with this series, classes that explore how the Bible is God's Word. Shameless plug today, we're doing that just after this service. Uh, in a couple weeks, how might faith and science relate to one another? And what is more, your pastors are deeply committed to helping you work through these types of questions. If you have them, uh, please reach out to us. We want to help you as you raise your questions and bring your doubts. But with these short 20 to 22 minute or 23 or 24 minute teachings, we're asking you to trust us with the main thing, which is to keep the main thing the main thing, what's most integral to the text. And an illustration of this dynamic about the main thing and the many other things that I simply cannot extract from my mind because it was good advertising is the Kibbles and Bits commercial from 1988 
And I should know because I looked it up, and some of you are already nodding, but you may remember in the commercial there's this big bulldog who's walking towards his bowl of kibbles and bits, and he's singing, kibbles and bits, kibbles and bits, kibbles and bits. And then there's this little bitty Jack Russell Terrier who's jumping over him back and forth singing, and bits and bits and bits and bits. Well, our goal is to be the bulldog, right? Helping you stay on the through line rather than get co-opted by the terrorizing terriers. No offense to terriers if you have one. But with that in mind, I want to address two uh, important questions, two big ideas this morning. And they're simply this. What is this passage mostly about? And then what is this passage also about? And I would contend that this passage is mostly about loneliness and friendship and also about singleness and marriage. However, before we dive in, I have a quick confession to make. I prepared another portion of this talk on gender and gender norms and gender roles and gender identity, but two things happened. First, there's so much material. I literally had 45 pages of notes. So by Thursday, I began to feel I would do a deep injustice to the topic if I don't address it more exhaustively. And secondly, as I was talking through my teaching with the three messages intact, the message clocked in at 47 minutes. So because meeting Jesus at this table is so important to us, we try to keep our messages to 22 or 23 minutes. All God's people said, amen, yes. But seriously, I I appreciate it when anyone desires to delve deeper than 280 characters in a tweet or a dance on TikTok. So I have a ton of resources for you. I'm happy to resource you with some biblically grounded, culturally timely materials. I'm also inserting an additional uh, middle hour on gender in a few weeks at the end of this series, so more to come on that. But today I I wanna look at these two questions regarding what this passage is mostly about. And firstly, we said loneliness and friendship. And there is this fairly exhaustive survey on loneliness that came out in January 2020, which gives us a sense of our loneliness quotient before COVID-19 even made things worse. And the study found that 61% of Americans describe themselves as lonely, at times feeling left out or poorly understood or lacking companionship. One question the survey was asked, how often do you feel lonely, and three out of five Americans suggested very often. And I'm lingering on loneliness because I'd like us to sit with two thoughts. One, we are lonelier than we have ever been before. Sociologically speaking, the high urban density of today accentuates loneliness as the quantity of human interaction, soccer fields, coffee shops, workplaces, neighborhoods, fitness centers, grocery stores, erodes often the quality of interaction. People fade in and out of our life like faces in a crowd, don't they? And then technologically speaking, all sorts of our devices are connecting us to all sorts of platforms and networks which grants us a connection that rarely satisfies and usually intensifies our loneliness. We become strangers with those we live closest to in order to become friends with those who live far away. Add to this mix of technology and urbanization the many life circumstances that we at times just simply cannot avoid or control. We move to a new community. 
We break up with a significant other. A friend moves away. We wish we had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but we don't. We live far from home and we feel homesick. We have young children and we experience the exhaustion and loneliness of the valley of the diapers. Perhaps we feel lonely in a crowd or in our marriage. Or we have a group of friends, but it seems they just don't get us. Or we go to our family reunion and we feel as if we don't belong. Well, the second thought, in addition to our being lonelier today than ever before, is that loneliness, even when life is going swimmingly, is inevitable. Consider this. As you read Genesis 1 and 2 as an ancient cosmology, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, as the exploration of what ought to be, you find benediction after benediction after benediction. It was good, it was good, it was good. Six times seven in the Hebrew. And to cap it all off, after God saw all that was made, he gave the uber benediction, the satis bene in Latin, the summa cum laude in academia. God said it was very good. Then like literary whiplash, like that scene in a 70s movie where the the needle scratches on the record and the party stops, Genesis 2.18. It is not good for man to be alone. The soul malediction, the bad word, even in the midst of a beautiful world that wasn't broken yet, even while in an unbroken relationship with God, it is not good for a human being to be alone. Think about that for a second. Whatever you believe about God, whatever you believe about church, wherever you are in your sense of doubt or faith, consider the implications of a God creating human beings to be most alive when we are in relationship to our creator God, and yet we still have the capacity to be lonely until we are in relationships with one another. See, the implications are staggering on at least three fronts. First, God The all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-loving God is humble enough, unself-centered enough, others-focused enough to create creatures that need more than their creator, that need one another. That's actually staggering. Secondly, we are necessarily designed to be in friendship, in companionship with one another. Life is a lonely road. We need to walk beside one another on it. This isn't about marriage, firstly. It's about companionship. It's what I love about C.S. Lewis' definition of friendship. Friendship is when you say to another, Oh, you too? I thought I was the only one. And then Lewis goes on, And then they begin to stand together in an immense solitude. Third, in addition to God being all-powerful yet others-focused, in addition to being summoned to friendship with one another, and get this, there's a sense in which we don't fully embody our capacity as God's image bearers unless we do it in companionship with one another. Christian Theology 101 teaches us that we're created as having a deep dignity and worth because we're created in the image of God. And if we had more time, we could spend three hours talking about how this important contribution to ethics is actually a Judeo-Christian one. We're not property, we're not disposable, we're not incidental, we're valued and cherished, and this is the grounds for the moral imperative to treat one another with respect and kindness and dignity. 
that's actually Christian. You can't get around it. It's consistent to be Christian and to care about people. But don't miss the collective nature of image bearing as well. This sense in which we don't fully embody our capacity as God's image bearers unless we do it in companionship with one another. Again, this is not firstly about marriage. After all, our triune God is in a threefold relationship. So as image bearers, we are summoned to mirror this relationship. Thereby, we pursue abiding friendships with one another. We are good friends. We choose good friends. We press against loneliness with this true companionship of friendship. So I want to put like all caps, bold, highlighter, underline on this point for just a second. Even when life is at its very best, even when things seem to be going the right way, pleasure is not enough. Purpose is not enough. Meaning is not enough. Freedom is not enough. Beauty is not enough. Work is not enough. Rest is not enough. Leisure is not enough. Nature is not enough. And God is not enough. God has designed you for God. Yes. And this is an eternal relationship that will last forever. Yes. But God has designed you for God in the context of friendship with one another. And these are also relationships designed to last forever. This is why we're so persistent here when we encourage you to move deeper into the community of our church, to become settled and connected and committed because we need one another to combat the loneliness of this life. So secondly, I said this passage is also about singleness in marriage. And currently in America, three out of four people will get married at some point in their lifetime. However, the percentage of people ages 24 to 54 currently married is only 53%. So this tells me the church must do a better job contending for and supporting the nearly one out of every two people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s who are currently single. And for some of you in this room or joining us online, you feel just fine about being single. It's a choice, it's a decision, but for others, it's a persistent struggle. And you may love church because you have found community here. And you may hate church because every well-meaning grandmother wants to set you up with their wonderful, and I mean bless their heart, wonderful grandchild. And given the many tender places we're coming from, I, I seek to approach this topic tenderly, and I also recognize I'm the married guy speaking about singleness, but humor me here for just a second. Jesus never married. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, considered marriage to be a bit of a distraction. Think about it. God isn't enough for us relationally, so we need friendship, but friendship is enough which means we don't need marriage. After all, according to Jesus, friendship lasts forever, but marriage doesn't. This should, at the very least, make our church a safe place for singles. And so I would be remiss not to mention, having met with many singles pastorally, having led singles ministries, if you're married, please don't treat our singles as projects or project managers. 
that they should be married, so I'm going to make them my project, or that they have all kinds of time, so I'm going to make them the project manager of this or that ministry. Just treat them as people who need physical touch and affection and conversation and relationship and companionship and friendship, just like you do. So what about marriage? Well, one way to address this pervasive loneliness that we will not be able to fully shake in this life is marriage. So in this Genesis story, Adam is created and there is no suitable helper found. So what people may miss in the story is that uh, verses 19 and 20, where Adam is tasked with naming the animals, is actually attached to verses 18 and 21. So it's not a random inclusion. It's connected. No suitable helper is found. So Adam is then introduced to all the animals. It feels like the first ever Match.com or Hinge or Bumble. The two-toed sloth, the brown bear, the peacock, the elephant. Too slow, too furry, too feathery, too trunky. Swipe left. None of these potential partners is compatible. So Adam is placed in this deep sleep. And this moment is not unlike a typical wedding preparation where the groom misses half of the details anyway. But then as the story unfolds, Adam's rib is plucked to fashion Eve. In ancient cosmologies on creation, thinking in architectural terms is useful. And so you've heard it said, the ribs of a building, or the house has good bones. In creation, Adam is the raw material, so Eve can be the crown jewel. Don't miss it. Women are the pinnacle of this creation narrative. They are not the throwaway pieces or the botched males that show up in other ancient cosmologies. And this is why Christianity celebrates women. That Christians empower women as equals. Adam launches into poetry. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. She is pretty spectacular, Adam is saying. Now to the marriage itself. Verse 24 and 25. For this reason, Adam leaves his father and mother and cleaves to Eve. And they become one flesh. And they are naked one before the other. And there is no shame. It's hard to imagine. When marriage is done properly, there's intimacy with no shame. This is covenant love. A covenant is a consecration of one relationship above all the others. It isn't a contractual agreement that one party breaks off when it's not convenient. It's forged in sickness and in health and want and in plenty until death do us part. And when I officiate um, weddings, I'm reluctant to allow a couple to write their own vows. If their own vows are good enough, I let them slide. But often contemporary vows are boiled down to something like, I love the way I feel about myself when I'm with you. (laughs) But, But a vow is actually, I love you even when you are the jerkiest version of yourself. See, leaving, forsaking, as is sometimes called, all other relationships and cleaving to a spouse in utter nakedness means becoming relationally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually vulnerable, one before the other. And it's in a moment of vulnerability when someone else has the power to crush you. But in the best marriages, it's in these vulnerable moments when the other spouse says instead, I love you. 
in the sexual intercourse of a great marriage, half of you just woke up, but intercourse just means dialogue, so that sexual dialogue is actually singing the eternal song of God's love for us. It would be like Katie and me at a Mumford and Sons concert at the Greek theater and Marcus Mumford during the last set he squints up in the lights and he asks, are Bart and Katie here? That's a terrible British accent. But. And we had seats way up in the back. We look at one another then, then sheepishly we put our hands up and we say, here we are. And Marcus says, would you guys come up here with me and sing this last song? See, that's what God does when he invites us into a monogamous, faithful marriage relationship. With this marriage relationship, will you sing of the faithful, devoted, sacrificial love that I have for the world? You know, this Me Too movement rightly combats the injustices and societal ills of a 1960s sexual revolution that left so many people, especially women, broken and battered. And in this moment, Christianity is saying of itself, we're actually super de duper consensual. We're offering dual consent because we believe that sex happens best in the confines of a faithful marriage relationship. So what about when marriage isn't done so well? When we screw it up, when we're the worst versions of ourselves, when our spouse is incorrigible, when we're unfaithful, when our spouse betrays us, when we're beset by pornography addiction or sexual promiscuity or festering resentfulness or brooding contempt. See, it's in these moments shame has stepped in and stoked fear around the naked intimacy of being fully known and fully loved. This happens because while we were designed for a blissful, intimate Genesis 1 and 2 world, we're born into a Genesis 3 world of brokenness, unfaithfulness, and betrayal. And we'll delve deeper into the nature of evil next week, so I'll only glimpse at it today. But here the tempter is saying to Eve, hey, God doesn't want what's best for you. In fact, God's withholding things from you. Just embrace the fact that you don't really need God after all. You can know everything you want to know, be anywhere you want to be, do anything you want to do. Just kick God to the curb and get on with it. And the rest, as they say, is history. All the cosmos unraveled. But the first thing that happened is Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness. And when they did, they became ashamed. To that point, they were completely laid bare before God and before one another, experiencing no shame because they were completely lacking in self-consciousness. And now ashamed, they resigned to self-protection and blame-shifting. She gave it to me, and you gave her to me. So it still seems like you're the problem, God. Pick it up in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Where are you? See, when God asks a question, God knows the answer to. It's our cue that the question is for us, not God. Because we're created to be revealers. Yet we become hiders. And God says, say it out loud. I'm hiding. See, as revealers, our deepest desire is to be fully known and fully loved. 
But now as hiders, our deepest desire has become our greatest fear. If you knew me fully, you might never fully love me. And so today, on this side of this great break in relationship with God, it's as if every relationship has become a bit of a strip strip tease, or a better analogy might be that of a kid in a ski suit. You ever taken a five-year-old skiing? Never take your kids skiing unless you're able to stand over the toilet and just drop $100 bills in it. When you can do that with no problem, you're ready. And then you experience hell on earth. Why? Because it takes 55 minutes to get them dressed and out the door. Then they have to go to the bathroom. So it takes them 55 minutes to take it all off, 55 minutes to put it all on again. And in any relationship, it's like we're wearing 300 pairs of emotional underwear. We unzip one, then the other unzips one, then the other, then the other. It's this dance of fear and desire. If you know more of me, will you love less of me? And Adam and Eve do this dance with fig leaves, which are two things simultaneously, small and coarse. They don't cover up all the shame, and they chafe us with self-loathing and sexual regret. So as we conclude, what does God do in his act of mercy? He sacrifices two animals and takes the two skins and says, let me cover you up. And here's the foreshadowing of God's sacrifice for us. Jesus took our nakedness and clothed us with his faithfulness in order to make us whole again. So in this respect, we might do well to see God as in the longest, worst marriage in the history of the world, married to us, the ultimate spouse from hell. Then when the moment was pregnant and the time was fully right, Jesus spares no expense and says, leave your lovers, come home, I forgive you. And not only that, Jesus goes on, I receive you as one who has been forever faithful and true, who has never broken covenant with me. There's no guilt and shame because there's no sacrifice for your unfaithfulness that's left. If I had more time, we'd we'd talk about this dynamic and how it gives shape to the only true way to live, not under the pressure that says, hopefully I can do enough to win God back to get his love and trust again but to live under the promise of God saying, I receive you fully and I welcome you wholly. Now stay faithful in my love from this day forward. And if I had more time, I'd also talk about what to do as an offended spouse in a broken marriage. How to think about forgiveness and trust and reconciliation. How forgiveness is about the past and it is possible, but trust is about the present and it might never be reestablished. And reconciliation is about the future that may never be realized in this life. A lot has been said. There's much more to say. But to bring it home, this passage is about loneliness and friendship. We need God's companionship, and we also need the friendship of one another. This passage is also about singleness in marriage. Mar- marriage is not the, the graduation to the life you're supposed to live, but rather it's one helpful way of dealing with loneliness. And the best marriages sing the song of God's faithful, devoted, and sacrificial love. And when we all screw it all up, we can take our guilt and our shame to Jesus and receive the healing 
and fullness of God again through forgiveness. So if you're deciding to start over today, then from this day forward, pursue faithfulness in friendships, in singleness, and in marriage. And let God continue to help you with your core identity as a forgiven, beloved, and precious child of the High King of Heaven. Would you pray with me? God, as we meet you at this table, um, we meet you with wounds and scars, with deep pain, some of us having been betrayed, others of us maybe having been unfaithful, um, some of us being walked out on, others of us doing the walking out. Um, God, you meet us at this table um, with wounds and scars as well. And those wounds and scars um, proclaim over each one of us because no one is beyond this proclamation that it is finished, that there is no sacrifice for sin that is left, that we might receive the new work in our life premised upon your work at the cross and the empty tomb. It's in your name we pray.